you open your Bibles, Mark chapter 13. The destruction of the temple and signs of the end times. <laughs> Heavy. <laughs> As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be first and be preached to the na all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank you. I say this is part one of, of uh, a two-part as we, we try and tackle this rather um, complex passage um, from uh, Mark chapter 13. And in many ways, the, the clock is ticking down for Jesus. In two to three days, he's going to be nailed to a Roman cross, and there's something rather poignant in this moment as he visits the temple for the very last time. 
And as he leaves, one of the disciples says to him, says, says look, look at this at these massive stones, look at this magnificent temple. And you can imagine just walking around and just staring and looking and at all that is going on around them. And these thoughts have probably been in the disciples' minds for, for a few days now. Most likely provoked by Jesus' words back in chapter 11 and verse 24 when Jesus says to them that the mountain will be thrown into the sea. If you remember that passage, the disciples didn't understand it back then. Truth is, they are none the wiser right now. And this temple is indeed magnificent. It's it's said that the, 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 um, the columns, the, the stone columns, were, were, were 40 feet in, in length, cut out of a single piece of stone. The foundation stone was thought to weigh more than 100 tons. This is one impressive building. Of course, it wasn't the original building that was built by Solomon. That was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 7th century BC, built again by Ezra, only to be destroyed again in the 2nd century BC, built again by the Maccabees, and actually extended quite dramatically by Herod the Great. In fact, the work is still going on, even as Jesus and his disciples are looking at this building. It wasn't finished until 64 AD. So, you can only begin to manage, only begin to manage, sorry, try again, only begin to imagine the astonishment of the disciples. When Jesus comes out with these words in verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another, every one will be thrown down. And Peter, James, and John, as they, and Andrew, as they walk away from the temple, and they come to the Mount of Olives, and they, they take a seat on the grass, most likely. The sun is a glorious sunny day. They look at the temple in the distance, and they they asked Jesus two questions. How and when? When are these things going to take place, Jesus? And how do we know it's going to come true? What are the signs going to be like, Jesus? The when, of course, Jesus doesn't give the answer to. In verse 32, he tells them that, not even, that I don't know the answer to some of these questions. Only the Father knows those sort of answers. But the how... We'll come back to that in a moment. But bear in mind, the disciples have got a very, very different idea of what the Messiah is going to do and to be. 
They, their thoughts for Jesus, they, they, they want him to come and to, to reign in Jerusalem. They want him to come as, as this big um, military and political leader to come and set up his reign in Jerusalem that one day all the nations of the world will come and bow down and worship and, and, and worship God in that place. That's what they hope for. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus does come as king and he is crowned. But his crown... Is a crown of thorns. And his throne is a cross. And this is hard for the disciples to take in. It's actually hard for us to take in because the implications of this, if this is the way that they treat Jesus, that they are willing to beat him and ultimately kill him, As his followers, as his disciples, surely we also must expect some level of persecution, of hatred. And as Jesus begins to speak and to explain the events that will take place leading up to the destruction of the temple and and, and surrounding that whole whole, temple, that whole issue, if we want to truly understand this passage, we need really to begin to understand how prophecy works. And Jesus here, he sits within the tradition of all the Old Testament prophets. So very often in the Old Testament, as you read through it, you discover as they are prophesying, they prophesy about an event that will take place within the lifetime, within the time of the person who is listening to the prophecy, but also it will also foretell something that is going to happen in the very distant future. So an example of that is found in the prophet, with the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophet predicts that a son will be born to a virgin. And this was assigned to King Ahaz in his own day. In fact, in chapter 8 we read how this, um, the prophetess gives birth to a son, but also it is foretelling, it is pointing to, to the, the ultimate son of a virgin who will be born to Mary in Bethlehem 700 years later. Two prophecies for the price of one. And this idea of the prophecy for now but also foretelling something that is going to happen in the future. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment, in this particular time, in this passage. Jesus predicts the upcoming destruction of the temple, the upcoming, in in verse 2, the terrible days that will surround that in verses 17 to 19. And then we read that this prophecy will actually take place within the lifetime of those who are listening. Verse 30 says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But also, it's pointing to a future detail, to a future event that is yet to come. When Jesus Christ will come, the second coming of Christ, when the world as we know it will end. So in AD 70... Roman soldiers marched into the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. People literally fleed for their lives to the mountains. Men, women, and children were massacred, murdered. 
it truly was a bloodbath. And we read how this historian Josephus, how he tells this terrible tale of the siege of Jerusalem, how people were starved to death, many of them eating their own babies in order to stay alive, many of them fighting with one another, often over just scraps of dirty food, very often just fighting for a little small political gain. It is said, actually, that more people, more Jews were killed by their own side, by other Jews, than were actually killed by the Roman invaders. We're not told when, but we're told how. We're not told when, but we're told how, and the sign that we need to look out for, and the sign that Jesus talks about here, he describes as the desolating abomination. And what that means is some sort of appalling object or some sort of person who will come, and when they come to, into the, into, and when they appear, it will be the sign of imminent destruction, an imminent disaster for this particular time. The text it referred back to is from Daniel chapter 11, verses 31. Um, and chapter 12, verses 11, and it speaks of this pagan um, arriving, these pagans arriving into Jerusalem, into this particular city. And what will happen? The stopping, what will happen? The regular sacrifices will be stopped, and there'll be a setting up of a pagan idol, an image of another god in the place of the one true God. Right in the middle of the temple, right in this place where God should be worshipped, will be the setting up of a false god. This will be a sign in their time. And the sign will be that they need to get out of there. This is no place for sort of any misguided national loyalty. This is not the time to stick around to see what happens. This is the time to run. And Jesus wants his followers to know very clearly they need to run and to get out of there. These are desperate times. In fact, this all comes to pass and comes to a climax in AD 69 when the Roman emperor, when one Roman emperor succeeds another. Four in all begins with Nero, then Otto, Vitalis, Vespasian, apologies for my pronunciation if they're wrong. Each time they come into power, they come as a, it's a huge civil war, huge amount of violence, huge amount of bloodshed. And when, when, when the last of them, Vespasian, comes in and set and goes to Rome to be crowned as emperor, his adopted son Titus goes to Jerusalem and burns the temple, destroys the city and crucifies thousands of Jews. Titus and his soldiers literally just leveled the temple. In fact, the Roman soldiers went into the temple. They were told that there was gold buried or hidden somewhere within the temple. So they began to search for it and they literally pulled the temple stone from stone. It's said by the historians as they set fire to that temple, that that temple burnt for months. When it eventually went out, it left only rubble. In fact, not one stone was left on top of another, just as Jesus had said. And God's word 
is to be trusted. And listen, this is not pleasant stuff. <laughs> Let's be honest. But God's word is to be trusted. And listen, as Freedom Church, we love, we love this book. We, we believe this is God's word, the word that will speak to our hearts, that will, will point us towards Jesus Christ. We can know it's true for many different reasons, but historically it just stands up. It stacks up with history. Listen, God's word is true. It shapes us and it will change us. But this prophecy doesn't stop there because very clearly Jesus' Jesus' description here moves way beyond AD 70, way beyond this destruction of the temple and is describing what it will be like when the Son of Man comes in great power and glory, verse 26. And the New Testament is consistent in painting this picture of these terrible times that will approach when Jesus Christ returns, marked by deception, marked by the persecution of Christians. But despite all of that, we are promised that despite all these tribulations, all these difficult times, it will follow by the victorious and the personal and the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. As sure as AD 70 happened, as sure as that temple was destroyed, Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And Jesus doesn't tell us these words to try and scare us or to try and alarm us, but to make sure that we are ready and that we are watchful. But more on that next week. For now, what does Jesus have to say to the disciples? The reality is for them, they are going to be facing persecution in literally a few In in, in a number of years from that point, they are going to be facing a lot of the challenges that we've just read about. Most of them are going to live through the destruction of the temple. So what does Jesus encourage them? How does Jesus speak to them? And therefore, how does he speak to us? How should we be living? How should we be acting in times, whether they're good, whether they're bad? What should we be doing? Okay, four things, very quickly. First one is this. Don't. Be led astray. Jesus says, do not be led. Jesus is primarily concerned that we keep our eyes and our thoughts fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to take our eyes off that. And he warns us about false teachers, about people who will come with some clever ideas or with even some quite attractive talking. And they they may appear very Christian. They may come up with some fabulous ideas. But listen, we need to guard ourselves, to, to stick to God's word, to make sure we do not get led astray by anything that is not from Jesus, anything that's not in God's word. And in Jesus' time, in the disciples' time, but actually in our time, in the last decade, firstly, everything has been up for grabs in evangelical circles. Everything from virgin birth to the resurrection, from atonement to justification by faith. Many folks saying, actually, you know what? Jesus maybe might not be the only way to God. And yet Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus says, I am the way. There is no other way. And we must be so careful. 
even with subtle things, keep going back to the scriptures. Listen, as you hear preachers, whether it's me or anybody else, as you hear people teaching, as you read your books, do it with your Bibles open and your minds switched on. Don't be led astray by false teachers. The second thing that Jesus encourages them to do is don't think that this world has come to an end. Listen, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be persecution of Christians. Jesus says that's, that's the way it's going to be. We might not like it, but that's, that's how it's going to be. And all these things are going to occur. And Jesus says these are just simply the, the birth pains. It's not the end. These difficulties are just pointing to some time in the future that will happen. But for now, these are simply the birth pains. But even in the middle of this terrible onslaught, God is still in charge. And he is looking after his chosen people. In fact, very often protecting them from the very worst of situations. Now, Jesus is speaking directly to the disciples. And it's very specific to them, knowing what they're going to go through in a few days or in a few, um, in a few years' time. But it also applies to each one of us. In fact, it applies all the way down through church history. And even though we may not be suffering in our country, there are many parts of the world today where persecution is a very, very real threat. Many people who, as they get up out of their beds in the morning, they do not know whether they will be thrown into prison that day or even killed because they choose to say that Jesus is Lord. Even this week, I'm not sure if you read it or heard about it, a young couple in Pakistan. Um, she's pregnant and, and she's, they're, they're put into a kiln, into literally a fiery furnace. And they're burnt to death because they say that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the reality in parts, in, in parts of the world even today. So this stuff is serious. And we need to be praying for these people, praying for God's protection over them, but also praying that they, they remain true and able to stand strong even through the most tragic and difficult situations. The third thing that Jesus tells us, use a good dose of common sense. This is very practical. <laughs> Just use a good dose of common sense. Listen, there are times when we need to stand strong and to, be, and to preach hard. And there's times when we need to be quiet. When we need to use some godly wisdom in certain situations. Sometimes, it's not always appropriate just to jump straight in there sometimes. And in fact, Jesus wants the disciples not to invite unnecessary hardship or suffering upon themselves and sometimes we can say the wrong thing at the wrong time or even do the wrong thing or just jump in too quickly when all the time we just need to put a bit of common sense in place maybe keep quiet and Jesus says as they build up to this destruction that will come this devastation of the temple for, for the disciples that that build up time they should be bold they should be strong but when things get really serious run just practical common sense get yourself out of there don't be fools just run for your life just just save yourselves and Jesus and God promises that he will protect his people and that comes when we live in obedience to his word but also when we listen to God the Holy Spirit 
You know what? Sometimes even we would do much better if we just stopped for a moment and before we do something or say something, we say, God, what do you want me to do? What should I say? How's the Holy Spirit prompting me in that moment? But also, you know what? God gave us a brain. And we need to use it sometimes. And common sense can often go a long way. The fourth and the last thing is this. Jesus says, don't worry. So easy to say, isn't it? A lot more difficult to do. And perhaps the hardest thing that we cope with, I guess, in, in our country is, is, as Christians is just rejection. And nobody likes to be rejected or, or, or thought ill of. So we, we, we develop little ways of dealing with this. And very often, what, as Christians, what we can do is we think, you know what? I can just talk about Jesus or about God with my Christian friends or in church, and that's fine. But when it comes to the workplace or to college or to university or to school or, or perhaps to my non-Christian friends, well, I'll just, just keep quiet. Just say nothing. Just, you know, what happens? We end up living two separate lives. And that's not how God has called you or I to live. I don't believe this is a time for any of us to be running or to keep quiet because everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. And even, even if governments and, and, and the police want to try and, and, and clamp things down and stop things, again, not a major problem in our country, but maybe a problem in other places, we need to stand firm on God's word. I have a good friend who's, who passed away about five years ago now, and uh, he was in his 80s, but uh, his name was Les. Les was a, an Elam um, pastor, and he, but he spent most of his, his, his younger life just going into um, countries that were close to the gospel with Bibles. He basically smuggled Bibles into countries. And he used to tell some amazing stories, and uh, he tells one story one day, he's on the border of, um, of on Hong, the Hong Kong Chinese border, going into, into Hong Kong, and him and his wife had filled a biscuit tin full of Bibles and then put some biscuits on top. And they're coming through, and they're, they're coming through the checkpoints, and the guys start to check through all of their bags and going through everything. So Les, very quick, as he, he, he decides to offer them a biscuit with all the Bibles in the bottom of it. He's either a complete fool or it's absolute brilliance. So he goes to says, guys, opens the lid up. Do you want a biscuit? The guy says, no, no, we're, we're fine, thank you. Put the lid back on, and he just, just walks them on through. And he tells numerous stories how God just opened up opportunities, how creative times, tell stories about times he spent in prison, times of, of real hardship, but how God was faithful even through all of that. But the most wonderful things he talks about is how just the joy of those Christians that he met in those countries as he hands over Bibles that they're so desperate to have. This is what we're called to do, to bring the good news of Jesus to those who do not know, who have not heard. This is the purpose of every believer, is the calling of church. This should be our first priority. And it's important that we live holy lives. That's pretty good. It's important that we 
sing our praises to God, and, and that's, that's important. And it's important that we get to know God better. But actually, all these things we'll be able to do in absolute perfection one day when we see Jesus face to face. The one thing that we will not be able to do better in heaven is to spread the gospel. And that must be our first priority. That we, we want to make Jesus famous in our city, in our generation. We want to make him famous in our nation once again. But make no mistake, this is not going to be easy. You won't have to spend too long in chapter 13 to see that's a little bit negative in places, to say the least. And followers of Jesus are going to face some challenges and some hardship. In fact, Jesus says even children may betray their own parents, even unto death. And there may be difficult times. But Jesus says there is no need to be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Because he promises the strength and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to be there in those critical moments. In fact, if you're standing and you think, I just don't know what to say or what to do, Jesus, in verse 11, says, Do not be anxious beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in the art, for it's not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And we need to keep talking, we need to keep preaching, we need to keep being faithful to God to keep honoring him in every area, even in the difficult circumstances, even the challenging things. Because in those moments we will know the power of the Holy Spirit at work, even speaking through us. He will give you the words, Jesus says. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. He'll give you the words to say. And God's goal is that God's word would be proclaimed to all the nations. For the disciples, it began in Jerusalem, then Samaria, sorry, then to Judah, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the world. You know the one thing that caused the gospel to spread more than anything else? It wasn't missions or missionaries. It wasn't a good strategy of evangelism. It was persecution. And the persecution of that early church caused the gospel to go everywhere. And God uses sometimes even the most tragic of things for his name to go further and farther than we could ever dream or imagine. We can only imagine what those four disciples must have thought as they listened to Jesus' words. I'm sure they're thinking, you know what, we didn't sign up to this Jesus. Doesn't doesn't really sound very attractive to us now, to be honest. I don't know how we're going to do this. And that is, you flip over a few books of the Bible and you get to the book of Acts, you realize that these men that look so confused, that seem so worried, are bold and they are strong and they are proclaiming Jesus and nothing, nothing seems to be able to stop them. What changed these men from little mice into men who were bold in faith? What was it? The Holy Spirit. God's Spirit came upon them. And God 
does not call us to walk alone. He gives us his spirit. He fills us with his spirit. What can take men and women in places like Pakistan and they can stand up for their faith even though it's, it's likely they may face death? What keeps them bold and strong? It's not their strength. It's God's power. It's the Holy Spirit in their lives. And God has given each one of us this amazing gift, his Holy Spirit, to fill us, to equip us, to lead us, to fill us with boldness and with joy, to keep us walking faithfully before him. Listen, we cannot do this in our strength, but in his strength, by his power, we can do anything. Let's stand together.